Hello and welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. On the show this week, Johnson's Tinkerbell Economics is unflinching belief a political masterstroke or is the government having a cost of living crisis crisis? Also, the sentencing of Sarah Everard's killer revives public debate on male violence. A real Me Too moment or a déjà vu moment? And finally, if there is a problem, Yo will solve it. We settle the debate on conference karaoke controversies. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us. We have much to squeeze in, so let's say hello to the panel. First up, welcome back to editor and writer Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Alex. Justin, last week, Newcastle United became one of the richest football clubs in the world after they were bought out by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund. Newcastle's fans on the whole celebrated. Human rights fans on the whole did not. What did you make of it all? Um, it wasn't football's finest moment, was it? I mean, it, in terms of the bigger picture, it's a very, very smart move by the Saudis. Um, I think it's sort of coming downstream from this kind of intra-regional rivalry they've had with Qatar, where you've seen Qatar have stolen a huge march on them, both economically with their enormous natural gas wealth, but also their investment in sport and also vast amounts of contemporary art via the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha, which is an incredible institution, huge sort of soft power exercise. So it didn't surprise me in that sense. What I think is less edifying is seeing the sort of collusion in this ludicrous fiction which has been rolled out that the owners are some sort of mysterious independent wealth fund rather than part of the House of Saud. And also this sense of pearl clutching from some observers in football. You know, British culture as a whole, whether we like it or not, is pretty much knee-deep in extremely murky money. You know, you see that in who underwrites galleries, who underwrites big sort of philanthropic organisations, orchestras, this sort of thing. And football clubs now, you know, are cultural institutes and are no different. So, yeah, it was a, it was a fairly depressing spectacle. Mm. Johnson said uh, at the time of uh, the Khashoggi murder that we cannot turn a blind eye to uh, Saudi Arabia's human rights violations, he's now seems a little more reticent to get involved. Do you think this will blow up in any way or will it just be another oligarch uh, owning another uh, premiership club? I think it will be the latter. Um, Mm. I mean, I I think this is something that for the most part, football has made its peace with. You know, we've had, you know, extremely, I say extremely, murky, unpleasant owners of football clubs for really at least since the founding of the Premiership. And, you know, I think it takes an enormous amount for any fans to walk away from their club, you know, for Mm. all sorts of cultural, personal reasons. And I think, you know, the bizarre scenes in Newcastle, we saw that sort of footage of blokes in Newcastle shirts and traditional Saudi headdresses celebrating in the street. Yeah, it seemed like a sort of slightly lunatic dispatch from modern England. But um, yeah, I think it would just be one of those things where in a year's time when Newcastle are going absolutely damn busters and swimming in money and at the top of the league, nobody will even comment on it. Also joining us, we have Times Radio host and former Labour advisor Aisha Hazarika. Aisha, hello. Hello. 
Um, the Prime Minister barely had time to unpack from his holiday six weeks ago during the Afghanistan crisis and is off again during another emergency. His supporters say a Prime Minister needs regular rest. Is that unreasonable? Well, look, I, it's one of these things that's really difficult because lots of people are always like, you know, any time you take a holiday uh, as, a prime, as a prime minister or a politician, you do get a lot of flack. Uh, Dominic Raab, you know, we will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them from the sun lounges, Dominic <laughs> Raab. <laughs> um, so I think, right, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and a, a good political friend of mine was saying, look, there is never a good time in politics to take a holiday. You know, Afghanistan happened over recess. So you could argue he is entitled to have a break. Often people will try and take a bit of a break after the party conference season. So, for example, I know that like last week, a lot of senior Labour politicians would have scheduled in some family time. Some people did go away. So I don't think that is the worst thing in the world. And we don't want to have a situation where we'd say politicians are not allowed to have any time off because I think that does not make for good decisions. Mind you, there haven't been loads of good decisions <laughs> as a result yes, of all this. He, he seems to combine plentiful rest with very bad decisions. <laughs> he, he manages to be both Judith Chalmers and really bad at making sort of decisions. It's quite an amazing company. But the thing that I think is more most interesting about this is a, he's going to he's gone to Marbella, which you know there was, there was that show The Only Way is Essex, and they used to say like <laughs> no carbs before Marbs. Which, in the Prime Minister's case, no barbs before Marbs. I think it's just the sort of thing. But the other thing is there's a big row about who is in charge because Dominic Raab is meant to be the Deputy Prime Minister, which which is hilarious in itself. But then today or yesterday, a, a Downing Street source said Dominic Raab is absolutely not in charge of the country, which gave us all a bit of comfort. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it quite interesting that, uh, you know, these people are saying the Prime Minister is perfectly able to do uh, the job from Marbella while at the same time telling civil servants to get back in the office because you can't work from home. <laughs> and and also that it's the same crowd that lionised Thatcher for decades for barely ever sleeping and, and held that up as a sort of uh, 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 evidence of her dedication. Never mind. Um, Maybe he's on a peloton in Marbella working. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we are delighted to welcome our guest, author, actor, comedian, screenwriter and celebrity MasterChef winner, Emma Kennedy. Lovely to have you back, Emma. Oh, How are it, you? It, I've been counting the days. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a joy. So thank you for having me back. Now, Emma, you're a fellow foodie. I yes. still remember you sailing to MasterChef Victory in a dreamy Ile Flottante. Yes. Um, what do you think of the idea of paying thousands of pounds to have a meme uh, dribble salt down oh. his elbow onto your okay. plate? <laughs> I mean, where do we start here? You, you, this, Indeed. This is, this is a classic case of somebody who has managed to fool all the rich people in any given place. I mean, I, I take my hat off to the guy. We're talking, of course, about Salt Bay. I mean, what a ridiculous yeah. name that he's given himself, who has managed to turn himself into an international business selling gold-plated steaks for £630 simply because he's come up with a ludicrously eccentric way 
of scattering salt. That's mm. it. There, there's nothing about his cooking skills. There's nothing about anything about, about how you can justify uh, charging a hundred pounds for a hamburger. Nothing. This, this is one of those classic examples where it is all just smoke and mirrors and absolutely no substance. Mm. It, it, it's yeah. almost. It's a little bit like the food world is dipping its toe into the occasional thing that happens in the art world where somebody manages to to charge people ridiculous amounts of money for something that is actually a little bit rubbish. Yes. <laughs> it's 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 the culinary equivalent of a non-fungible token. Yes, yes the non-fungible <laughs> I wish I understood non-fungible tokens. Emma, you are also, like my partner, a giant AFOL. No listeners, yes. I'm not being rude. An AFOL is an adult fan of Lego. Yes. Um are you attracted to modular builds, sort yes, of constructing yes. in, intricate but medium-sized shops and buildings that you fit around an expanding high street or village square? Or are you a fan of the creator niche, the big architectural builds oh, of the well, this, this is Sydney Opera yeah, House? This, and this, is it, this is interesting that you ask because technically speaking, the modulars are creator experts that 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 is the genre within lego that is the modulars which is like these beautifully constructed buildings like you have the parisian restaurant uh, mm. assembly square these beautiful beautiful builds um and then there's the architectural uh, uh genre within uh, lego which, which would be san francisco london skylight uh, skylines mm. Um, the 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 very overpriced and entirely not worth it Colosseum that they've just put out. They've they've just produced um, their biggest set ever Lego, which is a nine thousand brick. The Titanic, the yes. Titanic, which I, I which I think it's retailing at over six hundred pounds. Yeah, I've already and said no I to don't, that. Well, I don't I don't understand it. See, to me, I don't get those massive builds that you are good for nothing other than just staring at them because mm. the, the best lego sets are the ones that that have moving parts or beautiful interiors or that you can interact with um and and what what is the point of just nine thousand bricks worth of titanic that's useless it's going down it anyway Boris Johnson made a bullishly boosterish speech to Tory conference last week. Friend of the podcast, Philip Collins, described it as a postponement of reality. But reality, it seems, refuses to be postponed for long. A briefing war has erupted between the Treasury and the Department of Business and Energy, with number 10 playing referee. The Bank of England predicts inflation will hit 4% by Christmas. Investment analyst Scottish Friendly put out a report on Friday on what they described as the alarmingly fast-paced cost-of-living crisis. Their outlook is, and I quote, plain grim. Several more hundred pounds will have to be absorbed by average households in energy bills and car fuel costs alone. Food and drink prices went up by 1.1% in the month of August alone. And this is before one even takes into account the £20 cut to universal credit, which to a single young person represents a quarter of it. Or the fact that in a few months, the rise in national insurance contributions will pinch another £250 from the median wage. Aisha... Can Boris Johnson really hope to talk his way out of this, or will reality catch up with him this winter? 
Well, I suppose time will tell. I mean, Boris Johnson has the political gift of the gab and he does manage to talk his way out of things and into jobs of of high office. And I think he's very, very good at crafting um, a narrative. He's very, very good at the art of politics and the art of war around politics. I think what's really interesting is that how the sort of narrative has changed on on this. And I think what the Prime Minister is is trying to do, and I was at Labour, I was at both Labour and Conservative Party conferences, and actually both conferences felt quite strangely detached from what was happening outside the conference centre. And Boris Johnson's message is very ruthlessly focused still on, they don't want to sort of admit that this is because of Brexit in a bad way, but they do keep coming back to their central Brexit messages, um, which is, you know, we've got to wean ourselves off this, you know, terrible immigration, which actually did lots of great things for our country. And um, that these are growing pains. This is a phrase that I've heard a lot from Conservative ministers. But time is going to tell what they do have on their side is that a lot of people who voted for Brexit, it was like an article of faith for them. So if Boris Johnson keeps pushing that this is all a consequence of of, of Brexit and then the other things are out with their control, people may people don't want to be sort of admit that they were kind of wrong on things but it is going to be difficult i interviewed arch tory uh, jeffrey archer on my on my show and uh, a couple of days ago and he was really interesting i mean he was sort of saying look any prime minister facing everything that boris johnson is facing now would be having a really 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 difficult time and and he shouldn't be complacent about this because there is this sort of perfect storm brewing of rising living costs uh you know we know that there's an energy crisis coming down the the track we know that there's going to be probably more tax increases we know that there is going to be they don't want to call it austerity there will be a constriction on on public spending so all of this is going to be a very 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 difficult um fiscal situation but they seem to sort of they're not running away from it they seem to be sort of running towards it and sort of having a row with the economy <laughs> Yes, that's exactly it. He's, he keeps emphasizing that things are going brilliantly because wages are going up. I mean, let's park to one side the skewing of the statistics by furlough, which is significant. But are there many vo- voters who will just look at their payslip amount going up with satisfaction and ignore the fact that it no longer covers their bills? Is that Does the, the Brexit article of faith, does it extend so far as to actually augment reality for them? Well, I suppose we'll know that come the next general election, which, you know, I think is is, is, is probably two two or three years away. I think it's going to be a little bit earlier than the, but, but not a massive amount earlier than that. I mean, look, a lot of this is going to depend on how fast the cost of living rises. You're absolutely right. People aren't entirely stupid. If their wages go up, but that wage increase is eaten up by the fact that, you know, prices have gone up, then I don't think they will be wanting to reward Boris Johnson. But it's interesting that they have, they've really um, pushed this wage growth argument, because this was an argument I used to hear a lot from Brexiteer economists who I used to debate with a lot. Mm. And they kept making this point 
that wages would go up by constricting labour. This was their absolute sort of go-to economic argument. And, you know, people like me and others would say, but what about the chaos to the economy? And they would say, no, 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 this all needs to be readjusted. We have got addicted to globalisation. There needs to be quite a traumatic event to the economy. Everything will be rejigged, but wages sort mm. of will go up. And everybody said, but really, it is a limited amount of wage growth, like worth all the political turmoil. And these economists, limited in number, said yes. And it now looks like that is government policy. Yeah, not to mention that the notion of rebalancing the economy by means of market shock is quite insane, frankly. Now, um, the current economic slowdown combined with rising prices has seen some economists worried about the potential for stagflation. And because you will hear this quite a lot over the next few months, to explain what that is, why it is quite scary and how the government can act to avoid it, we spoke to Joe Mitchell, economics professor at the University of West England. I'm Joe Michel at the University of the West of England, Associate Professor of Economics. So stagflation is the ugly portmanteau term which puts together two different words, stagnation and inflation. Now, both of these are a little bit ill-defined. Economists are quite imprecise about how they define things, but very roughly, stagnation refers to weak or low economic growth in terms of income per person or productivity, how much is produced. And inflation refers to price rises, steady and you know quite sustained rises in prices, both at the same time. And the reason that we got this term stagflation with the two put together was in the 1970s, which is the classic period, particularly in the United Kingdom, uh, historical period of stagflation, some at least, there was a kind of dominant view among policymakers that you had one or the other. You either had strong economic growth and low unemployment, but that would come with the cost of inflation. Or if you wanted lower inflation, you had to put up with weaker growth and higher unemployment. So when we saw the two together, that seemed to confound at least some ideas uh, of a sort of policy choice between two options. Really, stagflation is a label for two symptoms. And you would need to sort of explain what's the disease which is giving those symptoms and how is it being treated. So I think the policy response from government would make a big impact on who feels the pain. If the government was to react, for example, by sharply raising interest rates in an attempt to control the inflation side, that could have severe pain for First of all, mortgage holders who are on variable rates, who see their rates rise, businesses that are borrowing might find it more expensive to borrow, could then generate unemployment that could feed through into weaker wage growth. On the other hand, if the government reacts by trying to boost investment, raise capacity, look for kind of long run solutions to bottlenecks, you would see a completely different outcome. The pain or the adjustment cost would fall on other groups in society. So I think it's not immediately easy to say who would would feel it. But in the short run, of course, rising prices, if wages don't rise, and that's a big if, because often wages and prices move together. But if wages were not to rise, then everybody will feel the cost of, of higher prices. The big difference today with the 1970s is the position of labour. Now, in the 1970s, we did see supply side shocks, such as the big oil uh, price increases, which were part of the, the trigger for stagflation. But we'd also seen a period in which trades unions and workers were very strong. And there was a lot of strikes, 
pay was rising rapidly, money wages were rising rapidly, eating into corporate profits. And that sort of profit squeeze mechanism, I think, was a big part of the the stagnation of the 1970s, the weak economic growth part. We now see almost exactly the opposite. We see lots of precarious labor, low wage jobs, very low union activity. So that part of the equation, I think, is very different. Justin, Joe said that the chances of stagflation occurring are around 30%. What happens if stagflation doesn't occur? Is the government's hope that this can become a moment of triumph that proves the the Debbie Downers wrong? Are 70-30 good odds for this sort of political gamble? Well, starting this with the caveat that obviously I'm not an economist, so uh, listeners, please don't uh, you know base your future investments on my advice. But uh, I think what's interesting is that this has been a feature of post-Brexit political life in this country in all kinds of ways, that the potential ramifications of this idiocy we've been embroiled in in the last five years are so bad, potentially, that if they don't fully materialise then the government is constantly able to fall back on a sort of sense of, well, the doomsters got it wrong again. And, mm. you know, things weren't quite as bad as there's still that sort of project fear idea that we saw, you know, a lot of in 2016. And I think that does give them a bit of political cover, but it also positions them in what's really the comfort zone for Johnson, which is a sort of pig headed optimism. You know, and you see that you saw that that was, I think, you know, the overall sort of tone of his yeah, speech yeah. conference. And a significant portion of the country does respond to that. You know, it's stupid to pretend that they don't. Now, that may not always be the case, and if and when things really start to bite. Personally, I would consider 30% as a probability that you really don't want to roll the dice on. But then the last few years have underlined to me that my idea of prudent risk management and the government's <laughs> idea of prudent risk management Now, setting aside all of what's going on, we also know that all the time there are unknown unknowns, you know, in risk management. Mm -hmm. This is a concept you deal with all the time. Do you think this features in government thinking or does it simply cross its fingers and hope there won't be floods this year or a new strain of COVID or a beast from the north or a volcano in Iceland? deciding to take up vaping yeah this is interesting i mean i mean, I think it made me think a lot about you've seen this a lot i think this under undergirds a lot of kind of conspiracy thinking that we've seen mm. a lot of in the last couple of years that people want to think that someone is planning for stuff and there is some sort of grand design but this idea of you know how much how much chaos is normal is being spun out in quite a subtle way recently. So I saw Matt Chorley was on Times Radio today, and he, he's not a particular booster for Johnson, but even he was sort of saying, well, to some extent, you know, governments are always in crisis, which I, I don't think is actually true. But you're hearing that line from a lot of different reporters at the moment, and I think it's reframing the current situation as being down to a sort of force majeure as opposed to the consequences of long-term policy decisions. But I think where this becomes difficult for Labour is that even now with everything, because there's so many different moving parts here, it's quite hard still to point to one big thing and say, that's what screwed things in a way that, say, going back to the 90s, you could say sort of coming out of the exchange rate mechanism was this one moment of cataclysm that really stuck to the major government because – Everything right now 
doesn't feel like one big breaking point. It feels like the accumulation of 11 years of just constantly doing everything on the cheap. And wherever, whatever you look at in this country, from the justice system to local services, to the NHS to care, that feels like what the common thread is. It's, it's not creaking. One, yes, it's creaking. And that sort of gradual accretion of problems where it's not one huge cataclysm you can point to, but this constant feeling of there is no slack in the system for anything. Mm. Emma, there is the added threat of food shortages around Christmas. One one government source said, you know, there, there will be cranberry sauce, but maybe not the brand you want or something along those lines. But added, we are just trying to survive past the 25th of December. How will shortages play in an already quite tetchy country? Well, I mean, for me... The most frustrating aspect of all of this is that there, I just have no sense that the government have a plan, or at least a proper plan. And they have known that this was coming for years, mm. for absolutely years. They've known about the driver shortages was coming. They've known for at least two years about that. Um, they've been warned repeatedly by people in the food industry and farmers that there's going to be a problem with supplies if you cut off um, their labour uh, force. And and this we are now seeing in real time the absolute consequences of political decisions. And mm. they had a, a, a really hope that people don't let them forget this as we go into what I think is going to be a terrible terrible winter because it's not just going to be food shortages there's going to be people not being able to pay for heating we may uh, factories are going to be closing down because they can't afford to be running our productivity is going to fall through the floor and Mm. all of these things accumulate I know that we're not like the French. If there was a shortage of baguettes on one day in Paris, they would be out and burning things down. We're not like that in Britain. You know, I I think it does take a lot to push British people to lose their rag. Well, I I don't know, but there's a gap. There's a gap between what we believe, because you know, when when KFC ran out of and people were calling. Oh yes, the they were police. calling the police. Uh, yes, when when they I ran out of chicken. Yes, a gap between the Britain we think we are and the mm. Britain we actually are. Well, I, I mean, I th- there's a part of me that sort of hopes that everyone just loses their shit, just properly <laughs> loses their shit, because I kind of feel that's what we need. Because the, I I I don't know how we've got here. But we have a government with an 80-seat majority that doesn't care. And they also don't think they're going to lose the next election. So mm. there's no sense of urgency about doing the right thing for anybody. And instead, we've got a government that's like a ping pong, just, just bopping about inside a windsock. It's just from one thing to the other, one thing to the other, with no, with no, with no focused plan about how they're going to move forward. I mean, look at the absolute shambles that we're currently facing with pig cull. You know, this is unforgivable. That one hundred and twenty thousand perfectly healthy pigs that could be going into the food chain are going to be culled unnecessarily because of the government's incompetence and nothing else. 
Mm. And instead, what are we going to do? Yeah, while the kids going hungry, and now what are we going to do? We've got to import pork from the EU. If all of this was about making Britain buy British and be self-sufficient, it is the worst possible way to go about it. There is this school of thought emerging from the sort of Brexit Johnson supporting press. There was a piece by Ian Duncan Smith romanticising civil servants going to the office during the Blitz. Mm. You had Isabel Oakeshott claiming that shortages will reveal to people the real meaning of Christmas. You have Claire Foges today suggesting that a lot of people actually enjoy going without because it's virtuous and mm. it shows strength. Yep. Do you think... Do you think that will be a a useful horse to flog, actually? Is it quite clever to make a a virtue out of necessity? Well, there is a real worry here. I have a pal who is a full-blown card-carrying member of the ERG, you know, a proper ERG Tory. And he regularly fantasises to me, and, and he's not joking, he genuinely does, about about Britain having to be have ration books. And there is no doubt about it that on some level there's a fantasy amongst a certain type of Brexiter about cosplaying the Blitz. And I really don't, and I'm not saying that to be facetious, that is definitely something that is going on. And I think there is this real sense of, oh, won't it be marvellous if we've all got no food and we, we're all going, having to sit in the dark and we're going to have to really dig deep and, 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 and it'll be our war. And there really is that, that feeling amongst a certain type of Brexiter. And everyone forgets, you know, if, if you knew someone who was actually, you know, went through the Blitz, it was absolutely horrific and horrendous. On Sunday, I spotted a small but utterly grim news item. Inquiries for self-defence classes by women have increased by 50% in the last month. The killing of Sabina Nessa and the conclusion of the Sarah Everard murder trial have reignited the public debate about male violence. Baroness Newlove, who is a Conservative peer and current Victims Commissioner for England and Wales, is pushing for a change in the law to make misogyny a hate crime. To be perfectly frank, if you simply widen the scope of what you ask the police to do, you'll just increase the problem, was the Prime Minister's response. Emma, Judge Fulford, in his sentencing remarks to the murder of Sarah Everard, noted he had eroded the confidence that the public are entitled to have in the police force. Can public trust in the police recover from the events of the last few months? I think the Met in particular are in proper trouble here. Uh, so I don't know if you saw today, but I read a story that, that 2,000 police staff um, have been investigated for sexual assault or sexual misconduct. And it's not clear that those 2,000 police officers have been got rid of. Mm. I, it just astonishes me that in, if, if you, in, in any job, in any line of work, if you have been found uh, to have either been sexually inappropriate with anyone at work or anyone you're supposed to work with, that should be the end of it. That's it. You're out in your ear. But there seems to be a culture within uh, the police force and especially the Metropolitan Police that you can, you know, commit crimes against women 
but you know, oh, it's all right. You can still keep your job, and mm. that's the thing that's got to stop. And I think, and I think, if they want to properly clean their house, they have to go back and look at every single allegation of sexual assault committed by a police officer in the last ten, even longer than that, ten twenty years, and they've got to get rid of them. Justin, the Met have appointed former Whitehall troubleshooter Louise Casey to root out misogyny and lax standards. What do we know about her? Yes, she's an interesting figure. And from what I can see, she's very well regarded. She's worked on uh, cross-party on issues relating to social welfare for five different PMs over the last 23 years. She was head of the originally the Rough Sleepers Unit back in 1999, remember that period when New Labour really significantly reduced street homelessness when they first came in. Uh, She was director for the National Antisocial Behaviour Unit and also headed up the Troubled Families Programme. I think her appointment is significant in terms of who they've chosen in that she was also the UK's first victims commissioner and she oversaw the inquiry into child sexual exploitation in Rotherham. So I get the feeling with them picking her that she's someone who's coming at this as someone with very good credentials regarding the foregrounding of victims rather than sometimes with these appointments where you feel like it's more perceived as someone who's been there as an agent of the status quo. Mm. There have also been calls for Met Police Commissioner Cresta Dick to resign. Should she stand down, do you think? And, And what would her replacement do differently? I really don't know, to be honest. I mean, I... I think the knee-jerk feeling is, yes, she should. And I think it's always the temptation to go, you know, heads should roll and the corollary of being at the top of an organisation is if something goes wrong on your watch, you walk. Although I've read a few really interesting pieces in the last few days by former police figures who were talking much more about the need for what they were calling effectively like a Stephen Lawrence moment with regard to the treatment of women by and also within the police force. Mm. And what they were saying in different ways was really just moving the chess pieces around the board and symbolically firing a few people isn't enough. And something like the post-Lawrence era resulted in real change because it was accepted as being a structural problem. And, there's some interesting suggestions going around from people far, far more informed than me. Um, you know, if you look at sort of legal Twitter at the moment, things mm. like, you know, the sort of structures like two-fifths of police forces in England and Wales lack rape units. You know, Greater, Ma- Greater Manchester, their specific uh, rape unit was closed in 2018. Cheshire's was closed in March of this year. Again, huge budget cuts. You know, everything's being done on the cheap, to our point earlier. And... One issue they were saying, you know, you've got things like essentially beat police officers being redeployed as data analysts because so much evidence in uh, assault and sexual cases is now on phones and laptops. So you've essentially got people who aren't really qualified for that work who are being redeployed into it. Um, I've seen some academics calling, you know, do we need a national um, rape and serious uh, sexual offences unit to be formed in the manner of, say, the Serious and Organised Crime Agency? So you could have one kind of supranational body rather than it being divided up between individual forces. So you think it's the organisation that needs to change rather than the personnel is the, the short of it, yeah, I think whether or not whether or not it goes, I feel is something of a red herring in that it feels like people who really know the ground here are saying, look, what is required are fairly deep, significant structural changes. 
Mm. Aisha, do you think adding misogyny to the list of aggravating factors that constitute a, a hate crime would actually help? Well, it certainly wouldn't hinder, and lots of MPs like Stella Creasy have been pushing for this. Um, there's lots of other pieces of legislation that female MPs like Harriet Harman are calling for, for example, to outlaw street harassment because people do believe, and I think this is right, that often there's a spectrum of behaviour which begins with sort of street harassment and then these perpetrators become more emboldened and then it moves to flashing and then it could end up Mm, mm. going somewhere much um, darker. But I don't think that just new legislation is going to solve the problem. I was actually working in the Home Office when the McPherson report into the Met's handling of the Stephen Lawrence report came out. That was the report which coined the phrase that the Met was institutionally racist. And here we are 20 years later. And to be honest, the Met still is institutionally racist. It's not like black and brown people have suddenly got this huge trust in the Metropolitan Police. And now women are feeling very, very unsure about the police as well. I think that there are deep cultural issues within the police. Um, I interviewed a recent police inspector on my show who basically said that women lie a lot um, when they come forward with rape charges, that uh, some rape was good rape because a stranger rape was easy to deal with, much more difficult if it was a rape between people who were friends or had been lovers. So when you're up against that kind of attitude, you know, in a way it was quite refreshing to hear it out in the open because it just does give you a sense of what you're really up against. But this sort of culture, the police reflects what's going on in society. And fixing the police alone is not going to fix this problem. This stuff is so endemic in what is still a completely patriarchal society when you look at who has power who shapes society, who has you know the money in society, who has all the sort of powers and the levers who can make or break people. This is, you know, this is very, very difficult stuff. I mean, one of the people who I think is doing great work on this is a young woman called Soma Sarah, who started this thing called Everyone's Invited. And it, it has shone a light on rape culture in schools and universities. And when you look at the testimony from These are like school kids about sexual assault that's going on at school. You realise how endemic this is in our society. Mm. What about this new 888 service that's being mooted at the moment? Uh, Do you see any merit in that? Apparently, you you can call or text a number and it will basically track whether you get home and alert people if you don't. But again, you know, I think it's, look, anybody who tries anything to help, I'm not going to knock that. But the idea that tracking women through GPS data is the answer to these very deep societal issues of misogyny and, and viewing women as, you know, you know, every woman will have had some horrible experience where they have feared a man in their life at some point. Um, an app is not going to solve it, unfortunately. And also I spoke to some women's organisations and they were saying that, you know, why is it that, again, it's all coming down onto women? Mm, Like women mm. have to be tracked. Sarah Everard did everything correct. She rang her boyfriend. We all text our friends when we're getting in a cab or, you know, we all text each other going, did you get home safe? You know, when you whenever women leave each other, they go, let me know when you get home. That's not just to be polite. That's in our brains because we know something could happen. So again, you know, an app, 
is not going to solve this. Tracking women is not going to solve this. It could be used nefariously, by the way, in terms of if you have a controlling partner and they want to sort of track your data, there's quite a lot of worries about this as well. And also, like um, one of the women's groups said to me, what if a woman puts her data in and then, I don't know, gets home as drunk, forgets to, you know, press the button or whatever to say that she's mm. like home and then mm. so it's got lots of you know bad so I don't think this is going to solve it I mean I, I'm not knocking the, the good intention but the idea that tracking women is the idea of solving kind of violence again male violence against women is, is just not is really quite depressing Emma let me ask you one last question every time something like this happens there is a hope that it will be the watershed moment when things finally change, when, when you know, it, it, it turns around. Why has progress been so slow and so marginal on this? Uh, because I'm afraid, Aisha is correct, is that every single time this happens, the emphasis is on what can women do to keep mm. themselves safe. And this is not going to solve itself until we shift the focus to make assaulting women as unacceptable as drink driving. And I know that drink driving feels like nothing compared to assaulting and raping women, but drink driving on a societal level is completely unacceptable and people will stop people getting in a car. What needs Mm. to happen within the context of sexual assault is that men have got to stand up and start doing something. And that means educating your sons properly, making sure that you call out sexist behavior when you're with other men. Just call it out, stamp it out. I bet Alex, Andrew, everyone who's on this call will have had conversations with mates and you will have thought, "Mm, that's a bit off what they're saying. But it's about saying it, calling it out and stopping it. And until that happens, nothing is going to change because we live in a society where being sexually aggressive towards women is acceptable. As the Tory conference passes were swept up and delegates made their way back to Surrey and Dorset, one debate was not about policy, raged on. Did the BBC's political editor, Laura Kunzberg, and Michael Gove have a rap and dance-off to the backing of a karaoke rendition of Ice Ice Baby? Accusations and denials flew around, but are such events really significant? Are journalists and politicians not allowed to just be drunk people sometimes? Or is this a symptom of a wider malady? Asia, how common, uh, as a conference old hand how common are these kinds of things at party conferences oh they're common all the time i think this story is just absolutely ridiculous i'm afraid and i do think everyone just loves to give laura koonsberg a, a, a good kicking she is like always singled out as the person to kick even though um at the labor party is famous for its karaoke the mirror party you had Angela Rayner singing, you had Andy Burnham singing, you had Jonathan Ashworth singing. I have sung at the Mirror Party before. I do think, <laughs> look, it's a, and done a very good rendition of Carly Simon, You're So Vain, I report. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the irony. Um, but I just think people are a bit, look, I know people get very upset about this, but the truth is political journalists and politicians do have 
very close relationships. They are like work colleagues. They work essentially in the same building in Parliament. They have lunches together. They have dinners together. Sometimes there is um, karaoke. I have seen it on on all sides. Actually, and Emma, you can testify this, the Mm. weirdest singing activity I have ever seen in my entire life was not at Labour. It was not at the Conservative. It was at the Liberal Democrats conference. Oh, do it, tell. Was Glee, it was Glee Club. That was oh, something yes. else. Yes, that's famous. Yeah, Glee Club is 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 notorious. You can say what you like about the Lib Dems. They love a show tune. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, do you broadly agree with that? Do you think it's a fuss about nothing? Or is it because there is already a suspicion that Laura Kunzberg is a little too palsy with number 10, that it acquires significance when when this happened. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose if if you want to, I mean, Lewis Goodall was also sort of singing away at, at the karaoke and he didn't get quite as much flag. But I suppose if if you want there to be clear water between you and the people that it's your job to hold to account, then obviously don't put yourself in that position and don't socialise with them. But, you know, I have friends who are on the complete opposite of the political spectrum to me and whose political views I actually loathe and detest. And I'm still managed to be friends with them because I think there's a difference between being pals with someone and and being somebody that you can enjoy an evening or a drink with. I think it's absolutely fine. I think it's to be expected, you know, that they all hang out with each other day in, day out anyway. I think having a drink and a and a and a sing song at a conference is fine. Justin, um at the Labour conference, the Mirrors political editor Pippa Crera who we love, sang karaoke with Andy Burnham and Angela Rayner, like Aisha said. Why Why did she evade the sort of scrutiny that Kunzberg was put under, do you think? I mean, I think partly because, she, I mean, she's just a lower-profile journalist, too. She had less of a public figure. You know, I think, to be fair to them, I think a lot of Kunzberg's critics on the left would claim that, as a representative of the BBC, she has a stronger duty to be impartial and avoid perceived conflicts of interest. But I think to Aisha's point, I think Laura Kunzberg is an absolute lightning rod for a very particular kind of sneery, angry misogyny from largely men on the left who would consider themselves well above sneery, angry misogyny and would be horrified if they were accused of that, but constantly feel the need to attack her in a way that they don't seem to with any other male journalist um, who are often behaving them in a far worse way. Um, I mean, I must say, I thought the way that particular story was dropped struck me as an absolutely prime bit of anti-BBC mischief-making. The Telegraph mm. put it out on their, I think their morning email, promptly denied it about 20 minutes later in the tweets <laughs> they put out. But by which point it was out there, it was half around the world, and the story then became, rather than, you know, two male journalists on the Telegraph having ballsed up and contradicted each other, it became about a female journalist getting attacked for the rest of the day on that spurious stories basis. And I just, just picking up on Justin said, like 
you can absolutely have your you know issue with with journalists but i think a lot of people's frustration is with the government and what the government are are doing and governments always control their relationship with the press even the governments you like let's say you're a labor person alistair campbell was notorious for spinning uh, the press and you know doing all sorts and of course Laura Kunzberg is going to have a really close relationship. She is the most important political editor in this country. She's the political editor of the BBC. The second most important political editor is Robert Peston. And I noticed that when all the Dominic Cummings, Barnard Castle stuff was happening, Dominic Cummings clearly was briefing both Robert Peston and Laura Kunzberg and some of the other big political editors. They were all pretty much doing the same tweet, but it was Laura Kunzberg that became the absolute sort of kind of, you know, whipping woman mm. for, for everybody. And no, no one batted an eye about Robert Peston. I may be in the minority here. I, I never actually think that Laura Kunzberg is particularly biased. I think the way the BBC often frames things uh, shows a laziness to me. They tend to basically cut and paste um, what that press release tends to say. And that's why I think there is a a systemic pro-government bias. But I also don't think Laura Kunzberg is a particularly good journalist, I'm afraid. And I think that is actually the root of the trouble. Because if, you know, if someone like Beth Rigby was singing duets with um, Michael Gove, I, gi- I wouldn't give two hoots, or or Luce Goodall, for that matter, who was mentioned. Because I know that the next day they would do an absolutely unflinching piece on what's going on. But... I think I think Laura Kunzberg is not as she's not as hard nosed a journalist, and that I think is the source of the problem. What, what well, I do. I would also add to that that I think this government relies a lot on uh, just saying something, knowing that, especially with our twenty four hour news cycle and the, the advent of Twitter, that they can say anything. And it will be reported, not necessarily as fact, but that whatever that message they want to get out will go out before yeah. it's been as- before it's been fact checked. And and journalism, I think, is is not about just repeating what politicians have said. It's about listening to what politicians have said and then fact checking it before reporting it. That's yeah. that's what. But but we but we. And it's not. This isn't just about Laura. There is a lot of that going on now, and especially on Twitter. Well, as a journalist, I, I should pitch in and say that is exactly what happens. I mean, if I'm on air and there's a big story breaking, we will read out or we will go to the government minister who is making a comment. Yeah, we will take that live. We will read out a, a, a statement. We won't fact check it. We will read it out because we mm. are we are all about doing breaking news then there will be analysis after that and that has always been the case I'm afraid Mm -hmm. I'm going to lob a grenade now um, because this is meant to be the lighter item and we've become very very serious so okay your dream political karaoke partner each one and what duet you would sing Aisha I'm going to start with you 
Well, I have um, sang karaoke many a time with (laughs) Labour politicians and Conservative politicians, but the best karaoke stroke, worst karaoke I ever did, but the most fun karaoke had to be with Ed Balls. We used to do karaoke quite often, and the song we would love singing together, although it was very hard to do, and we absolutely, like, like murdered this song, was (laughs) Carly Rae Jepsen, Call Me Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now that song is designed for a teenage girl not for some massive bruiser who's trying to be the chancellor <laughs> oh god is there the video is, i want to see video that, thank god there's no video but if there was video the tragic thing is as well we actually do the dance moves as we're singing oh, like we, oh, we're really so committing oh, to we it need yeah. video. You, you can't do this to us how about you justin uh, I was going to paint a little picture for you, Alex. I'd like me on stage at conference doing the karaoke, a uh, sort of melancholy, maybe acoustic rendition of uh, Things Can Only Get Better. And then halfway through, in the sort of Travis unplugged version. And then halfway through, in the manner of George Michael and Elton John's duet, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tony Blair, and he was very red Stratocaster, a bit too high, and there would not be a dry eye in the house. Oh my word! I yeah, this needs to happen too. How, how about you, Emma? Okay, so I'm torn. I would like to pick Jess Phillips um, okay. to do uh, Salt and Pepper to push it real good. Oh, that's or, a good tune. Or and I think I'm veering towards this one. Uh, do Nicola Sturgeon, Let It Go, from Frozen. <laughs> As a duet. A, just let it go. It yeah. be a proclaimer yeah. song with Nicola Sturgeon. No, I'll be talking about the, the indie referendum. Just let it go, Nicola. <laughs> let it go. I think I prefer the, the former option. Of that, um, P- push it real good with Jesse. There, that'd be amazing. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker. And as usual, it's time for escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books, and miscellaneous activities that have acted as a soothing balm for our panelists away from the bruising world of politics? Justin. In light of all this week's uh, red-hot football chat uh, relating to Newcastle, I've been enjoying the BBC three-parter fever pitch um, about the foundation and formation of the Premiership. Um, So that whole sort of late 80s, early 90s period is absolutely fantastic as this snapshot of what happens when mass working-class entertainment met the most lunatic end of 1990s go-go marketing. Uh, Yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant series. Can't recommend it enough. Cool. What's going on, Justin? You're all about the football this week. You know, I'm so (laughs) blokish these days, Alex. I'm just whipping people with towels and putting you in a headlock after the show. (laughs) How about you, Aisha? I succumbed. I wasn't going to watch it because I thought it would – I just couldn't handle it. I You're going to say Squid Game, right? Yeah, I've and I I'm knew it. Obsessed, obsessed. Like it's so horrifying. Yet I cannot stop watching it. It's it's incredible. But I just like I can't believe the sick mind that came up with it. It's absolutely brilliant, and I know Emma has a jumper. I, I'm wearing it. I am <laughs> actually currently wearing a four five six Squid Game jumper. No! I've got okay. it on my actual body right now. 
I need a selfie. We need a selfie. We need I a saw selfie the photo of that. It's amazing. I posted a picture on Twitter, Aisha. Go, go and look okay, at my I'm face. Gonna- but the thing is, I've become so obsessed that I can't sleep. And I, all I keep thinking about is because all I keep thinking about is I'm so crap at games, right? I was thinking if I was ever in Squid Game, I'd be fucked, but it'd be terrible. I can't yeah. do any. And it's made me think, oh my God, I need to like gem up on childhood games just in case I'm ever in that situation. <laughs> See, I, I, on the other hand, would absolutely nail it. You'd be the guy in the mask, Emma. Uh, yes, I, 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 no, I would be, I would be 001. I'll say no more. I'll say no <laughs> say more. Say no more. I mean that because I have watched it all. Yeah, now, I'll but, say no more. Yeah. What, what about you, Emma? What, uh, what has been occupying well, your? Well, apart from Squid Games, I have finally got round to watching uh, the morning show on Apple TV, which is brilliant. But the main thing I've been doing uh, this this week between doing writing and researching horrible deaths is playing Assassin's Odyssey, which is, uh, you might be interested in this, Alex, in that it's me. I'm playing a man from a small island in Greece, and I'm Mm -hmm. just traveling around basically murdering Athenians. So can I tell you something, Emma, which will give you a thrill? Yeah. A lot of the voices you hear in that are me. Stop it. (laughs) Stop it. Who are you in it? So uh, I play a few main parts, uh, the main one being Euripides. I don't know if you've come across the the drum player, right? I've just met Euripides. Yes, it's a very nice drinks party. That's me. But also, every time you shoot a guard and they fall off a balcony, that's me screaming. Uh, Do you also shout, um, I'm on fire, I'm on fire, help me, help me. Yes, great. A lot. I'm so happy. I know this now. So, yeah, they're called the Walla Walla sessions because you're making loads of background noise. It's an absolutely brilliant game. Have you played? It is a brilliant game, I agree. It just goes on for months, doesn't it? Yeah. So next time you step into a clearing and some minotaur creature says to you, mortal (laughs) fool, (laughs) that be me. (laughs) I just love this. This is so random, isn't it? Isn't it? I can't believe you didn't do the whole show in that voice. (laughs) Mortal fools, this is the end of this week's bunker. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. To Aisha Hazarika. Thank you so much for having me. And to our very special guest, Emma Kennedy. Mortal fool, you are welcome. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week and the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Remember, if you like this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right there in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise, and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You will earn our gratitude and a shout-out at the end of the podcast. To wit, here are this week's. Very many thanks and best wishes to Maud Seagard, Steve Baker, possibly the self-styled Brexit hard man himself, and Matt (laughs) Sheard. And many thanks and the very best from me to Paul Kent, Alex Tobin and Andy Blackett. And finally, hello and a big thank you from me to Dr. Stephen Gregson, George Terezakis, John Salisbury. And thank you for listening. We'll see you all next week. The Bunker was presented by Alexandre 
with Aisha Hazarika and Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yalna Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>